We are in a sermon series on the doctrine of union with Christ and how it meets with the lies of identity as put forward by Henry Nouwen. And in the past weeks, we've looked at the lies, I am what I own, I am what I do, I am what people say about me, and then we did a two-parter on I am my worst moment. And each lie is a subtle variation on the problem of justification and legalism because all of these lies are attempts at defining ourselves apart from God. What they all share in common is like what Augustine said about sin some 1700 years ago or so. He said, sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. But even though we may believe the lie of self-definition because we are inescapably social creatures, no one actually can define themselves. No, we care deeply about what other people think and how we measure up to others. At root, then, each lie puts forth kind of the same thing. What this person or this group thinks of me, or even what I think of me in light of this group or this standard, is what actually gives me meaning, value, and validation. And in turn, this matters far more than God or his relationship to me and what he says and thinks about me. That's why it's both a justification and a legalism issue. We are trying to measure up to some standard, that's the legalism part, in order to obtain for ourselves the status and worth that we think will make us complete or righteous or good. That's the justification part. So for Christians in our context, however, we've learned We've learned well the lesson from Galatians, and so we don't typically pursue a religious legalism in the attempt to justify ourselves before God. So we don't believe things like Bible reading or church attendance or prayer or giving your time and money away will make you right with God. We know better, and rightly so. And because we know about the problems of religious legalism, we've actually gone the opposite direction and hardly take Christian practices seriously at all. So for me to even insist on things like, say, regular church attendance comes across as, ah, it's a little much, it's a little much. Even so, like the Galatians, we too are easily tempted into believing that our identity is found in something other than God. And this week's lie is I am my best moment. Our text this morning, we're going to focus on Philippians 3, 3 through 9, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 and keep reading past verse 9. So this is Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, this is the word of the Lord. There was the microphone. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we uh, continue on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that we are possessed by Jesus and that in turn we can let go of any attempts at justification, any attempts at trying to make ourselves right because you have done it all. I thank you for this time together in your word. I pray your blessings on us all and I pray this through the power of the Spirit. Amen. To understand this lie, I am my best moment. All you need to do is consider Bruce Springsteen's glory days. And I, I'm tempted to, to read the whole thing to you, but two verses and a chorus will, will be enough for that. He sings, I had a friend, was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speed ball by you, make you look like a fool, boy. Saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in, he was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks, but all he kept talking about was glory days. Well, they'll pass you by, glory days, in the wink of a young girl's eye, glory days. Well, there's a girl that lives up the block. Back in school, she could turn all the boys' heads. Sometimes on a Friday, I'll stop by and have a few drinks after she puts her kids to bed. Her and her husband, Bobby, well, they split up. I guess it's two years gone by now. We just sit around talking about the old times. She says when she feels like crying, she starts laughing, thinking about, you guessed it, glory days. The so-called glory days are your best days, or perhaps even your best day when you were at your absolute highest peak, maybe your, your greatest success or your championship moment. If the lie, I am what I own, says that my value and worth is in this thing, or I am what I do, looks for value in my job or my role, or I am what people say about me, finds it in how people talk about me or say my level of popularity. I am my best moment, finds it in my achievement. I am my fastball. I am my beauty. I am what, I, what used to be this, this best version of myself, and that's what gives me life. That's my justification. That's the reason why I matter. And perhaps it was when you were the fittest or prettiest version of you, back when the size of your dresses was in the single digits or maybe even the low single digits, or the waist on your jeans was a 32 or less and you wanted people to see that. Perhaps it was when you actually had athletic prowess, at least as you remember it, and actually won something and have a trophy to show for it. That's where all your old war, war stories come from. And they all start the same way. Back when I played ball, 
back when I was in college, or back when I was captain of the cheerleaders, or back when I was valedictorian. And as Bruce Springsteen insightfully points out, in America, your glory days only happen when you're young. Unlike most of human history, our culture uniquely indoctrinates the belief that glory is not for old people. Old people are has-beens. It's why the kids I teach or coach take great joy in making fun of me for being, as they see it, old. As if being young is somehow better than being middle-aged. Never you mind that they are all of them immature, completely dependent on their parents for everything, and have yet to even complete the absolute bare minimum of education. You know, only in America is it a flex to be 16 and driving your mama's car. Still, because their ligaments function better than mine, and because I have neither the desire or the time to devote hours a day to a particular athletic skill, they point and laugh, not realizing that like the wink of a young girl's eye, these brief moments of youth, they will pass them by. And what happens when they do? What happens when you are the star of the football team your senior year, and in a moment, a mere turning of the seconds on the scoreboard, your football career is over? What happens when you are part of the 1% who can extend their athletic career a few more years past high school, but still, it's over in often unceremonious fashion? What happens when people remark that you used to be beautiful, and it was clear that in your prime, you were. Who are you now in the present tense? Who are you when nobody cares? And I mean nobody cares about your stupid old war stories of what you did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago because you've told the same dumb eight stories ad nauseum and nobody wants to hear them again. They're just polite. Are you left to gather over coffee or around a campfire or over cocktails reminiscing about what once was unable to deal with the present tense of life and having to compete with your friends, interrupting their story so you can tell your stupid great husband story? Who are you when your so-called best moments are in the rearview mirror and the only one looking at them is you? As we've been discussing in the evening service, Paul thinks there's no place for boasting in the Christian life. And what he means is that there's no place for Christians to put themselves forward in a, have you seen what I've done? Look at me, sort of way. And it's not as though we, we can't mention our achievement or that it's wrong to win or, or have trophies. It's rather that boasting has the same impetus as the Tower of Babel. I'm making a name for myself, or as a redneck might put it, hold my beer. For the world, boasting is just another form of justification. It's another way of setting yourself apart and proving you have worth and value. But for those in Christ, boasting in your, your so-called glory days or creating your identity around your best moment is a rejection of the gospel. Paul brings this out, I think, masterfully, really devastatingly, in Philippians 3. 
In verse 1, Paul commends the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And this is one of seven times he mentions rejoicing in his letter, so clearly it's important. And rejoicing as Paul means it implies humility. To rejoice in the Lord is to worship him. It's to elevate him in your life. It's to put him on a pedestal and say, look at how incredible he is. It's to live out, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So instead of living in a Tower of Babel, it's all about me sort of way, it's to live as if it's all about him because it is. In verse 2, Paul warns the Philippians to look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. And I presume he has in mind the Judaizers, like what we saw in Galatians. It's the, the Jewish people who insisted on circumcision for Gentiles as the marker of being part of the people of God. Verse 3, however, begins with a reminder. In light of all this, a reminder to the Philippians of who they actually are. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this is in direct contrast to the Judaizers who did put confidence in the flesh by way of circumcisions. For Judaizers, circumcision was like a trophy. It seems strange to us, but to them it was like a trophy. It was a mark of social capital that set you apart and gave you value in the eyes of the community. It meant that you belonged. You were part of the group and you could prove it. It was something you possessed and you measured up. In contrast, Paul says the people of God, the true circumcision, are not marked in the flesh. No, they are marked by the Spirit. Or as the Old Testament looked forward to with the New Covenant, they are circumcised in their hearts by the Spirit. And this was something accomplished by Christ alone. In turn, they don't have glory in themselves. No, glory is found in Christ alone. Even so, not to be outdone by his critics, Paul says, fine, fine. You think you've got trophies? You think you possess some moments that glorify you? Okay, buckle up. Then he lists what he's got. Circumcised on the eighth day in perfect keeping with the law. He's Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, and you don't get more Jewish than him. He's a Jew's Jew, and no matter what these Gentiles do, let alone his Jewish critics, they can't out-Jewish him. And as to the law, Pharisee. As in, son, you don't know what the law is. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, as an aside, to really get the meaning of this, Zealots, in his time, got their fervor from Phineas in the book of Numbers, who, when the people of Israel in the wilderness took to a form of, shall we say, temple prostitution with the Moabites, an open rejection of God, Phineas, in his zeal for God, and I'm, I'm going to speak euphemistically here, killed an Israelite man and a Moabite woman with a single spear who were attempting to worship in God's tabernacle, blaspheming it. And this was seen on Phineas' part and by God himself, his zeal as a good and righteous thing. So like Phineas, Paul too was willing to kill in order to keep Israel from profaning her relationship with God through what he saw as an abomination, Jesus himself. 
as to righteousness under the law, and he has in mind all of the, the Jewish traditions surrounding the law too, blameless. That means you couldn't bring a charge against Paul on anything because he was totally consistent. So in my mind, and this is really reducing it, but in my mind, I imagine this in terms of the late and great Bill Russell looking at Michael Jordan saying, you know, it's cute. It's really precious that you've got six rings. I've got 11. Bill Russell, y'all. Paul has trophies. He's got social capital and glory that neither his critics nor the Philippians can touch. And what's fascinating is that Paul speaks of these things as his possessions. These are things he owns. These are his best moments that he can point to and say, see, I have worth. My glory is greater than your glory. And by implication, I have more value and worth than you. I mean, after all, it's about making a name for ourselves. And how good can a name be if it's not better than some other guys? That's the point. That's why all dads complain about every kid getting a trophy. When everyone gets a trophy, who cares? I want my kid to win the real trophy. But Paul changed with Christ. In verse 7 he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's a huge statement. It's a huge statement. And Paul, you see, is an owner of reasons to be confident in the flesh, of trophies that prove his social capital and in turn his righteousness and worth. But with Christ, these possessions, these marks of the flesh, he now counts as loss and a social deficit. So much so that by the end of verse 8, in comparison to what he has gained in knowing Christ, the loss of these possessions was like, and the Greek term here uh, he uses is somewhat coarse. It's like getting rid of garbage or human waste. So in light of knowing Christ, his trophies are completely, shall we say, flushable. As McCaskill points out, whereas formerly Paul was concerned with amassing achievements or social capital that could be associated with himself, you know, I am my best moments, now he considers his hope to lie in acquiring a person, Jesus. And it's not that Jesus will be his newest and best possession, the latest and greatest trophy in his collection, but rather that he will be found in Christ, his self-subsistence surrendered to Jesus. So, what sinful humans try to do, this is the Tower of Babel, is acquire things, whether it be possessions or a job or a spouse or fame or trophies that are now owned by them and that they control and they can use for their justification. With Christ, a person gains something that actually takes possession of him. It's why Paul is unashamed and is quite literal when he speaks of himself as a slave for Christ. He sees himself as Christ's possession and he thinks that's the best possible thing for his life. Again, as McCaskill 
puts it. Paul's shift can be stated like this. I used to wish that people and God would look at me with all my physical particularity and see how much I had that would speak of my status within God's kingdom. Now I want them to look at me and see that my particular self is in Christ's self, that what I have is, in truth, what he has. So the difference is found with verse 9. Whereas Paul formerly pursued a righteousness from the law, now he has righteousness that belongs to someone else, Jesus Christ. And in turn, that righteousness has been given to Paul in Christ who indwells him through the Spirit. So what Paul is, is after is no longer ways of trying to validate himself. He's already been validated in Christ. No, now he shares in Christ's suffering and in his resurrection as a participation in Jesus himself. So instead of pursuing a righteousness for himself, he has a righteousness that has been given to him. So Paul goes from thinking of himself really as an autonomous individual who can acquire meaning and value and worth all on his own to understanding that he can save, he can have none of those things, none of those things apart from Christ, and it is a fool's errand to even try. In fact, like the rich young ruler who asked Jesus the nonsensical question, what can I do to inherit eternal life, Paul recognizes that it's impossible to pursue something that can only be given. Only in Christ, only by participating in his life, by being indwelled by him, can those things actually happen for Paul. Again, as McCaskill writes, he now sees that righteousness can be amassed not by doing things, or being a particular kind of person, but only by knowing someone and by being known by that one. So it is, as Martin Luther famously put it, God does not love us because of our worth, as in what we have done, and what we have pursued, and what we have to show for it. Now, we are of worth because God loves us. So whereas Paul struggled with religious righteousness, where his his social capital was measured in terms of his pursuit and his possession of the law and Jewish traditions. Again, we, we really don't struggle with that. We struggle with worldly versions of this, as did the Galatians too. So, for example, there was a three- or four-year period of my life where I was a very motivated bow hunter. What I was after was not merely hunting, but a good buck that would prove I was a good hunter. In reality, I, I was actually desperate for it. I wanted to measure up. I wanted the trophy. And when I finally got one, instead of happiness, it was relief. I finally did it. And after my, my third good recovered buck, and I have hit several, I did not recover, the desire to be out in a stand actually diminished. And part of that was the desire to spend more time with my family because hunting takes a ton of time. But the reality was that I had gotten my trophies. I had my proof. And I have pics of those deer on my phone 
right now. And if you want to see them, I will gladly show you. And I, I can point back to them and say, see, I know what I'm doing. This is proof that I have a man card. And the funny thing is that I go hunting a fraction of the time now. And I enjoy it far more. And when I miss or I don't get anything, I don't care. I still had a good time. But it wasn't like that before. I would lose my mind if I didn't see something or if I didn't hit something as if the day or the week or whatever, maybe the season was ruined. The lie, I am my best moment, leads you to believe that your worth is caught up in what you can boast about as if a dead deer gives you life. And as you age and you can no longer throw a fastball or climb a tree stand, you can at least point to those trophies, trophies and what once was. And the net result, as Bruce Springsteen masterfully points out, is that it makes living in the past the norm. Those past events take on oversized roles in our lives and in turn make living in the present nearly impossible. And the future becomes ever more bleak as the period of time grows from our best moments. And it leads to a sad nostalgia where middle-aged men find themselves in their cups reliving what once was and middle-aged women looking wistfully at old photos mourning that their children actually grew up. So if last week's lie, I am my worst moment, fears that this life might be as good as it gets and despairs over it, I am my best moment believes that whatever that moment was, well, it is as good as it will ever be. It's why your glory days, as the world sees it, are always in the past and why so many people and Tom Brady right now comes to mind. Desperately and at great cost to themselves try to recreate them when time has long since passed them by. You know, in comparison, Paul thinks being owned by Christ and having the righteous, his righteousness far exceeds anything he could ever do for himself. It's why bearing the name of Christ is a joy and it's an honor. You know, for Paul, our so-called glory days are never behind us. They are wrapped up in Christ's glory. While we will never have his status as the king of kings, of course, we do have the status of being his family. And it's glorious. It's glorious. It's so liberating. It's so freeing to know that you do not have to leave a legacy. I feel so sorry for pro athletes that are just you know, harassed by this. What will his legacy be? You do not have to win a trophy. You do not have to prove anything about yourself whatsoever. It's why Paul can write in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He used to live as if everything depended on what he could gain for himself, in particular with his reputation. In Christ, he has everything he could possibly ever want or need. And if that's true, if we are indwelled by the King of Kings, then what's there to boast about except him? What can rings or a record or a buck or a photo of your past beauty ever compare with what we have in Christ? 
You know, if we were to stand beside the greats of this world, the Michael Jordans, the Elon Musk, maybe the Ronald Reagans, whoever you think is a world-defining great, for all that they have accomplished, for all that they have amassed, they cannot compare to the one who made the heavens and the earth and what he has, and he has given himself to us. They stand alone. They justify themselves. Christ stands with us. Again, it's like McCaskill notes. He writes, if we take seriously that all we accomplish truly belongs to the name of another and that all we enjoy is a function of his wealth and not ours, then the dynamics of our social identity will change accordingly. So, like Paul, you will move from owning whatever you think gives you value to knowing you are owned by God and have your value in him. So your best moment begins at his cross. His triumph is your triumph. His righteousness is your righteousness. His resurrection is your resurrection. His life is your life. So instead of having trophies, you have him. It's why Paul commends us to Christ's own path in Philippians 2, taking on the life of the king of humility as the norm for our life with him. So does that mean then that it's wrong to have a trophy? No. Am I sinning by keeping pictures of bucks on my phone? Maybe, but hopefully not. Every Wednesday morning, you should know this, every Wednesday morning, when I show up for men's study, there is always a story being told. It's never present tense. It's always past tense. Is that a sin? No. Is it wrong to have a good time going through old photos and remembering what once was? No. Does this mean that we should not pursue excellence or that achievements are wrong? No, no. But I would say it does depend on why you are pursuing them. Why are you keeping those bucks on your phone? Why are you going through the old photos? If, like with Bruce Springsteen, we find our value and our worth in those things as if a ring or a diploma will give us the value and the justification and the meaning we've been promised they will, if we, in turn, trot them out as proof that we matter and return to them over and over again, for meaning and believing that our best days are behind us or perhaps the so-called good old days were the actual best days, you know, when America was right, not like now, then we are more than likely straining against the gospel, if not outright denying it. But if you have come to see and believe that you are owned by Christ, then trophies or stories or pictures, they can actually be a far sweeter memory because they no longer carry the weight of your soul. You are no longer your best moment, you are Christ. And in turn, it redefines what achievements actually are in such a way that they cannot define us as the world does. In reality, it turns achievements from a selfish endeavor to a self-giving endeavor. So whether you have six rings, like Jordan, or 11 rings, like Russell, or no rings, like Barclay, 
your reason for existence is not justified by a small piece of gold covered in compressed charcoal that represents one moment in time. No, you are in Christ. You have his love. You have been given value and worth in him. So for good reason then, we don't rejoice in ourselves. We don't boast. We don't brag. No, we rejoice in the Lord always, just as Paul commends. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we often say here that there is no gift like Christ. That is absolutely true, even as we struggle to see it. Thank you for the gift of life in your Son. Thank you that his victory is now our victory. Thank you that his righteousness is our righteousness. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.